As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I am Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by my colleague, Stuart Mandel. We had a very shaky week of in college football. A lot of games postponed, some canceled. Uh, no top 25 matchups yesterday, but still, it seemed like another really, really eye-opening weekend in the Big Ten. Uh, Michigan looked awful. Penn State looked awful. Um, what do you make of this, Stu? First of all, I just want to note that this is probably the first time in the six years of doing the Audible that there's an actual college football game going on while we're recording this uh, Cal-UCLA game. Speaking of how weird a weekend this has been. Uh, you know, it's interesting for a conference that's only playing nine games and started later than, than most yeah, I think the Big Ten's been very compelling because of what you just said. It's it's not outside of Ohio State, obviously. It hasn't been the usual suspects. You've got Indiana in first place in one division, Northwestern in first place in the other. And meanwhile, Penn State, never in a million years would I have guessed Penn State would be 0-4 right now. I know that they, probably more than any team in America, has been affected by not just opt-outs, but obviously their star running back, Journey Brown, had to medically retire this week. But that still doesn't ex- fully explain just the um, how how dreadful their offense is, how their DBs, who actually are pretty well-regarded or were coming into the season, struggle so badly. Um, happy for Nebraska to get that first win. But I don't know, which is the bigger train wreck right now, Penn State or Michigan? Uh, I think it's Michigan, to be honest. Um, now, look, uh, Michigan won one game and they blew out uh, Minnesota. And we'll touch on them in a minute. But I just think you look at Penn State. Yeah, they're 0-4. But I think no one looks at James Franklin and going, yeah, well, somebody else is, you know, should have that job. I mean, as you mentioned, the Journey Brown situation. Then Noah Kane, who's a really good running back, he's expected to be out for the rest of the season, too. So, you know, initially what they thought was the best running back room in the country has now been decimated and they have looked bad, no doubt about it. I mean, to me, the, the more eye-opening thing from them 
was really how they looked against Maryland, where they just on defense looked disinterested. They just looked horrible on that side of the ball, especially. But Michigan, I mean, after the opener where you get excited about them and then you kind of realize, well, wait a minute, Minnesota actually is horrible this year, not to read much more into it, but they have looked worse by the week. And to me, the way they looked against the Wisconsin team and credit to Paul Christ and that team, because they had had to cancel the previous two games. It wasn't like they were on some kind of roll. Um, I just thought, you know, look, and, it, and it's weird even talking about this again, just because I feel like we've had a lot of, a lot of conversations on this show about what, what's going on with Jim Harbaugh. What does Michigan do from here? And I don't, you know, I mean, I had this conversation with somebody else. I trust a lot on these kinds of things. And I was like, what would Michigan do if they were to, to part ways in some way with Jim Harbaugh or Jim Harbaugh would just decide, you know what, I'm not getting it done at my alma mater. I need to move on. And, you know, you can throw out a lot of names. I mean, short of maybe, and whoever you, whoever they would get, because they are, you know, if it came to that, it's not like we don't think Bob Stoops is coming out of retirement or Chris Peterson's going to go there. I don't know who they get who would either not be a big, big gamble or a or somebody who they'd like whoa that's a not a michigan character move kind of thing i just don't you know you could look at it and say would they hire a guy like you know mark stoops who's done a nice job at kentucky but it's not like you know, he's got one top 25 season there um in almost you know seven or eight years i just you know short of that maybe you look and kind of bet on matt campbell to to do a lot better with better resources. But otherwise I just don't know what to do, what you would do if you're Michigan at this point. First of all, I'm not giving James Franklin a complete pass. I know we both have sung his praises on here many times and probably been higher on him than the actual Penn state fan base, but um, opt outs or not injuries or not. They, I mean, the one thing that he's always been criticized for is his in-game management and some of the play calling in the red zone on uh, against Nebraska was puzzling to say the least. This was the second game this season where they've outgained their opponent by a considerable margin and still lost. Um, but his job's not in jeopardy. We're not having that conversation. That Harbaugh question is legit now. And some will say, oh, there's no way Michigan's going to fire him, uh, partially for the reasons you said, but also just there. And we can talk about this more in general with the coaching carousel, but I'm not sure the president of Michigan is interested in making a coaching change when there's a lot more pressing challenges going on on that campus and on every campus right now, um, especially financially. Uh, but I think that that whole idea of, well, who are they going to get that's be, that would be better was more valid up until this season, because up until this season, we were just talking about, well, he's, he hasn't beaten Ohio state. He hasn't won the big 10, but in general, they were still pretty good or they were decent at least. This team were, is so that's not fair. They were not just decent. They were, I mean, they were winning 10 games. They weren't just decent. Decent is eight and five, seven and six. They were winning, you know, they were, he was in the, he's been in the top, top 20, I think four of the five full years he's had there. That's not fair to say just decent. I think that uh, it was been, it, it was starting to trend in the wrong direction. If you remember, what were they nine and four last season? They got blown out obviously in their last two games, but yeah, uh, in general, Still better, you know, than a lot of programs. I mean, again, I think I think people are giving like I get it. They are terrible right now, 
But to just say they were decent, I mean, going into this year, I think he was like 33 and 13 or 33 and 12 in Big Ten play alone. And they're in the tough division. Again, he's been in the top 24 out of the five years he's been there. I think it's not just decent. Now, again, I agree. It's trending definitely in the wrong direction. But I don't. I think it's a little bit revisionist history to go in and look like he's going seven and six and eight and five. That's not fair. Well, my point is, when he was thirty three and thirteen, you could legitimately say, "Well, if Harbaugh's. If you're not happy with Harbaugh, who do you really think is going to be better? Because they're still pretty good." And one thing you would often hear is, "Well, the main defense of Harbaugh coming into the season was, well, it's a lot better than it was under." Rich Rod and Brady Hoke. Well, you can no longer say that. Um, I think the one thing that that a couple people noted to me as they're watching this game last night is, I mean, not only is this team poorly coached and really lacking top end talent, but you just they're like, why are they so small? <laughs> where where are the the big massive linemen and linebackers that you would expect to see at Michigan? So I, I just I don't I think it's past the point of no return. I don't see him getting it back. Uh, this season, they've got a game against Rutgers this week that they really better win. Because if you look at their schedule, there aren't a lot of, oh, yeah, Michigan's definitely going to win this game um, beyond that. So I think the only question is whether they're going to pull the plug or whether he's going to pull the plug this year or next. But no, I mean, you name some good coaches there. We've talked about Matt Campbell. There's a lot of good coaches out there that would have the pro- that could have Michigan certainly in a better position than they are now. Um, I see a team that's that. that I mean, we, I said this jokingly last night. Like, this is what it looks like when an entire team opts out. They looked so just not engaged uh, the entire game against Wisconsin. I kept waiting for some sort of second-half rally, and uh, outside of one drive, it never happened. Now, we can sit here and, and rag on Michigan, but like you mentioned earlier, Wisconsin hadn't played a game in three weeks. Graham Mertz, the quarterback, wasn't even available until, I think, Friday. Uh, and you remember the game against Illinois, it was all him. And the one thing you thought was, well, I'm a little, I'm a little troubled because I don't see your typical Wisconsin power rushing attack. Well, they went out there, uh, Saturday night, 51 rushes for 341 yards and five touchdowns. Jalen Berger, the true freshman from New Jersey actually led them in rushing. I don't think he even played in the first game. Wow. Uh, we got another good running back from New Jersey. Where have we heard? How that? about that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, puts an interesting spin on this coming week where they're going to face 4-0 Northwestern, uh, who I obviously know a little bit about. And I think this is the best defense Northwestern has had in 25 years since the 95 Rose Bowl team. But after that first blowout against Maryland, their offense has started to look more and more ordinary. I don't know if they can beat Wisconsin. I think it's interesting that you have one team that's 4-0, the other one's 2-0. And if the 2-0 and team beats the 4-0 and team, they take over first place. Yeah. Um, interesting times in the Big Ten. And I want to ask you this because I watched the game Friday night, uh, Iowa, just – and, like, if anybody's not – if you're not either – haven't spent any time around the Iowa-Minnesota rivalry, it's one of the – it's one of the more intriguing ones in college football because and, – and people figured it out. If you didn't know by – the fourth quarter, those staffs do not like each other at all. And it ramped up, especially so when PJ Fleck came to Minnesota. I mean, my TV crew did that game twice, including last year when Iowa 
handed Minnesota its first loss of the season and they it's real and you could see it where Kirk Ferentz is calling timeouts late in the game and challenging calls and everything. But, it, you know, so the game is a 35 to seven blowout. And I don't even think it was actually even that close, but you look at Wisconsin, look at uh, Minnesota, they're one in three. They've got, you know, they got blown out by Michigan. And we just talked about how dismal Michigan looks right now. Do you think, take a step back here from this, right? Cause you know, last year, Minnesota had a really good season and now they get Rashad Bateman back. They have Ottman Bell back. They obviously have really good running back. Tanner Morgan looks like he has regressed significantly. I feel like PJ Fleck in a, in a warped way owes Michigan and Penn state a big thank you because nobody's talking about how bad they've been. Um, but from a big picture sense, do you think any of this or how much of this do you think you can write off as, whoa, there's, it's just a crazy 2020 and there's been such a disjointed off season, especially um, as it relates for how teams kind of come together and, and deal with this. When you have three programs in the Big Ten that were supposed to be really good and they've been horrific, I mean – what do you make of that? I don't think we'll ever know because everybody's dealing with the same challenge. How do you know which ones just handled it better or had better luck in terms of which players were affected when? I mean, if anything, I would have thought Wisconsin didn't practice for 11 days at one point uh, during this you know, COVID outbreak they had. Uh, they still had several starters out because of COVID. And they whooped Michigan, right? If any team should have had an excuse to be like they came out flat, uh, it would have been them. And then you've got other situations where I'm sure there have been a lot of teams that have performed poorly due to things going on behind the scenes that we didn't know about. Minnesota, I mean, to your point, first of all, Minnesota is never going to be held to the same standard as Michigan and, and Penn State. And I think it's easy for people to just say, well, they were a one-year wonder. They had that great season last year and that was like a once in a, in a generation kind of thing. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but I think probably the, the accolades that Tanner Morgan and Rashad Bateman had may have overshadowed the fact they actually had a pretty good defense last year too. And if you've watched the Tampa Bay Bucks, you know that Antoine Winfield um, is a pretty good player and it's not just him. They lost a lot of their defense and they're atrocious. Uh, they may have the worst defense of any power five team in America. Uh, well, no, I'll give that to South Carolina, but they're, they're right up there. So um, yeah, I'm not that, that I don't know. I don't know why they've progressed so terribly on that because side they have, You know, look, I mean, again, the Tanner Morgan thing is puzzling because look, he has one of the best receivers in the country and Chris Hoffman Bell is a really good receiver. They still have a, you know, a guy who's going to probably uh, run for a thousand yards. And it's weird because, you know, you just look at how much this group has regressed. And again, I, I think it's like, it's an interesting point And someone you just touched on about like, it's definitely affecting teams differently and why some, some programs are able to push through it and thrive and other ones seem to just be imploding. Um, and again, it's like, it's, it's weird because it's not, I feel like, again, this isn't to give, uh, Penn State or Minnesota or Michigan a pass. But again, these were three of the teams we expected to be very good, and they are so far from good. 
I mean, you look at what they're going to do. I mean, you mentioned what Michigan's prospects are, what Penn State's. I mean, these teams all could very well end up like two and six and be lucky to be two and six in the Big Ten. Right. I mean, uh, another another one um, that, again, like how do you – there's just no, it doesn't seem like there's any correlation. I did Colorado's state of the program piece in July, and at that point – the players had barely spent any time around Carl Durrell, who got hired in February. He gets hired in, I think, late February. They have one team meeting, and then spring practice gets canceled. Their quarterback was in the transfer portal, and Durrell had to talk him back. And they're 2-0. and uh, they, they pretty much whooped Stanford. Stanford made a late rally, but uh, who would have seen that coming? So some of the teams that you would think have an excuse due to COVID are actually performing well. Others, who knows? Um, I want to give credit to one team that's clearly handled it very well and is 4-0, the Indiana Hoosiers. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you think? Do you think they can beat Ohio State this week? I think they can hang with Ohio State. I, you know, And maybe I got an uh, overviewed thing. I, I feel like Justin, Justin Fields is the best player in college football. And he fits in a really good system. He's got really good receivers. Um, the last time this game matchup happened in Columbus, we did that game. And I remember going to – I mean, I think I told this story on the podcast. I know I've told it to you before. But I remember we went to do our interviews with the players and coaches at Indiana. And so we went out to um, – there's a hotel in Dublin, Ohio, where a lot of the teams who play Ohio State stay. And we had to go to their, their walkthrough was in the parking lot. And you're looking at – their team and they look like they had a lot of guards and centers, meaning like they didn't have a lot of length, you know, just like body types were different. And you just kind of like, I don't think this team is going to hang with, with Ohio state. And they did. Um, they gave Ohio state a lot of problems. And I think the thing I kept on coming back to was just listening to the conversations on the, on the IU bench at the sideline was they just really, really play hard. And now I feel like, uh, um, you know, Brody Miller, our, our uh, writer who went to IU but is on the LSU beat, did a really good st- story last week on the young coordinators, Nick Sheridan and Kane Womack, who have done a terrific job for Tom Allen. And I just think that they've got it going in the right direction. But the margin for error against the team they're going to play this weekend is is really slight. But it's it's been interesting to see how that game has become a marquee game. Like yesterday afternoon, uh, while I was at Fox, it was like our crew, basically our bosses said, hey, the big noon kickoff show is going to Columbus, and that's the game, you know, that's a top 10 matchup. I don't think anybody saw that coming. But, you know, credit to Tom Allen and those players because they got a good thing going. And, I'm, and you know what, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like a lot of times in this we are so – get so zeroed in on the teams that are really floundering and maybe lose sight of the ones who are flourishing. And definitely Indiana is that. It's been something I've noticed over college football and the way we cover college football actually for some time is that there's this, this, this train wreck fascination where, I mean, how, how much, you know, um, how many minutes have we spent on this podcast the last few years talking about Clay Helton um, I think back to Lane Kiffin when he was at USC or Mac Brown in the last days of Texas, where they ended up dominating the conversation. I mean, we're doing it. We're, we're doing it with Harbaugh every and, week. 
Yeah. And, and then, but at the end of the day, like Indiana is a great story. Um, I think that, you know, and you mentioned they play tough and all those things like that's kind of their, that I guess is the backbone of the program, but what's different about them this year is they really do have a difference making quarterback in Michael Penix. And I think when you look at the Ohio state matchup, if you've watched Ohio state so far, obviously Justin Fields is Justin Fields and they're going to be a national championship contender as long as he's the quarterback. They don't have a chase young this year on their defensive line and they don't have a JK Dobbins in their backfield. And I do wonder if Penix can have himself a game against a defense that even Ohio state fans expected to take a step back this year and is maybe still finding its footing a little bit. I don't think that as great as Indiana's defense is, I don't think they're going to shut down Justin Fields any, any more than anybody else can, but can, can their own quarterback answer? And he does have three really good receivers. I mean, Philly and Fry Fogel are really good receivers. Peyton Hendershot's a really good tight end. I mean, those are, those are weapons and that, that will be fun. I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a few days. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If we could transition away from the Big Ten for a minute, you kind of mentioned in passing there, Justin Fields, you think he's the best player in college football, and you certainly have a lot of reasons to think that. Um, But of course, he's only played three games. I want to alert you to a guy who threw six touchdowns last night against the third-ranked defense in the SEC, Kyle Trask. Bill Connolly uh, from ESPN with this eye-opening stat comparison. You ready for this? Mm Mm-hmm. Joe Burrow, first six games of 2019, 148 completions for 2,157 yards, 25 TDs, three INTs. Kyle Trask, first six games of 2020, 148 completions, same, for 2,171 yards, slightly more, 28 TDs, and three INTs. Kyle Trask, at least halfway through, is having the same statistical season as the guy who broke every record imaginable last year. Uh, I feel like Joe Burrow was, was more of a, again, I don't want to, I'm here. I am. I'm, I'm going to start to do it. I'm not trying to crap on Kyle Trask. I think there are played a little differently. Joe Burrow was a, pro- was more of a problem for defenses making first downs with his legs. Uh, Kyle Trask has been great. I don't want to say he's not, but I do feel like there was a little bit of a different way and they play. Sure. And certainly I mean, for one thing, Florida already has a loss against one of the better teams they've, uh, the best team they've played. Um, Joe Burrow went 15 and 0. So I'm not ready to go there by any means. But I do think that, I mean, when we filled out our Heisman's. There, but you just went there. <laughs> You're not ready to go there, but you just took me there. Well, I think it's, an, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's like, you, Eugene, I, always, I always think back to. Poor, poor I always think with you. Yeah, I always think back to Geno Smith, right? You got to. Nobody wins the Heisman halfway through the season. They got to, it's how they finish. Um, but that being said, right, we, every week we submit our top three to Matt Fortuna for our Heisman straw poll. And yeah, I had Trask number one because I feel like I can't, I can't say right now that I should have Justin Fields number one because he's only played three games. Uh, the other guy I have in my top three is Mac Jones, who's 
also putting up ridiculous stats. I think he suffers a little bit in the conversation because how much of it is him and how much of it is Alabama's amazing offensive weapons. It says something that Kyle Trask had that game, even though he was without Kyle Pitts, the best tight end in America and the guy who had been his favorite target to this point. No doubt. Um, that the, the Heisman discussion is interesting because I, I just submitted mine to Matt as well this morning. And I, I honestly, I would argue that Kyle Trask is the most valuable player right now in, in power five football. Um, again, I don't, I hedge on that. Cause I, I, I think Ohio state would not want to see what the Buckeyes prospects would look like without Justin Fields right now. But I just, you know, I think it's like real close there, but uh, I've been blown away by how good Kyle Trask has been. And he feels like he keeps getting better and better. So I'm sitting there with the guy who I think is the, the, the you know, the best weapon out there right now. And then I have Kyle Trask too. And I kept Trevor Lawrence three. And here I am thinking, all right, now I've already slighted Mac Jones, who's been terrific. And Zach Wilson, who that's why I put that caveat in there and say power five, because BYU is not in power five. I mean, to me, you, you have five guys who right now, I think you could all make a strong case should win the Heisman trophy, which now, as we know, is not going to happen for probably a month later than it normally does. Yeah. How about that? I don't know if they kind of snuck that announcement into game day that um, the Heisman ceremony is going to be on January 5th. The voting will be done before the playoffs but the uh, winner will be announced after the semifinals. Um, yeah, Zach, well, that's, it's, you know, at this point, there's more than three guys you'd like to have there. I, I, Zach Wilson has been in and out of mind as well. Uh, the, there were only a couple games in the SEC because four of them got canceled this week. Uh, one of the other ones was Ole Miss, South Carolina, which was amusing, if nothing else, for than Lane Kiffin's uh really ability to throw his clipboard probably 30 feet up in the air uh, when he realizes their receivers wide open uh, on the post. Um, Boy, Will Muschamp, I mean, he came into the season on the hot seat and he's done nothing to get off it. They're two and five. Their defense is horrendous. Um, They've been blown out three straight weeks. And it's, it's interesting to me because in any other year, I I mean, Will Muschamp might've been fired this morning or this afternoon. Like this is the kind of situation where, all right, he's done. We're not even going to wait till the end of the season. It's not even certain that they actually will go through with firing him because he's got a $13 million buyout, which is actually reduced in his late last contract. He actually, for reasons unknown, agreed to a lower uh, buyout. Um, And I looked it up. Josh Kendall, our South Carolina reporter, uh, had this in September that their AD Ray Tanner told the board of trustees they're projecting a $58 million revenue gap uh, this season because of the pandemic. Now I realize that buyouts generally, you know, it's past the hat around the booster is not necessarily um, ticket sales or something like, but like, I don't know your coaching carousel guy. What do you expect to happen this, this off season or this, I guess not even off season, like in the next month or so. Yeah. I mean, if you look, unless they beat Missouri and win at Kentucky, cause I don't see them beating his alma mater, Georgia. I don't know how you keep them after, you know, a four win season last year. And like you said, I mean, they, 
they got lit up bad at Ole Miss. They got blown out 48 to three at home against AM. And remember, TJ Finley, the true freshman quarterback, he lit them up and they put up 50 on them. Uh, you know, at the beginning of this just dismal showing. And that actually came after they upset Auburn. So I don't know, unless they show some real signs of optimism in the last stretch, I don't know how you how they go on with Muschamp going forward. I mean, his tenure at Florida was not great, obviously. People like him, but it just I think there's a lot of lot of uh skepticism about whether he can get it done as an SEC head coach and I'm not sure there's enough reason at this point to be sold on him. Now, if you're them, and I've made some calls on this already, you know, Billy Napier is a guy who a lot of people like and passed up some other jobs. I would not be surprised if Billy Napier wanted this job. Uh, Hugh Freeze is 8-0, and we've talked a bunch about him already. I mean, I think he would get that place going. We talked about him uh, related to Tennessee last week. I think South Carolina um, would be another job that would be tough for him to say no. I'm sure my guess is if it was South Carolina or Tennessee, I know I'm almost positive he would take Tennessee, but and then there's a name I heard to keep an eye on, which is Jeff Munkin, the Army coach, who's done a really good job. And I heard he has some connections with some influential people down there as well. I, Stu, for all the stuff you said financially, I just don't know when you're in the state of South Carolina and Clemson is, is like the reigning powerhouse of the sport in your own state. And like South Carolina has some resources. I don't know how you... Just go, all right, we're going to probably ride it out, try to be six and six or something. I just think that's a that's a tough sell for people going forward that, you know what, we can't really do any better at this point. Football drives the bus. And as we've seen at other schools so far that have had to start making cutbacks, those cutbacks don't come from football. They come from the athletic department layoffs, which South Carolina's had a few. They come from cutting, if in some cases, cutting the tennis team or the swimming team or something like that. Football is the one you keep investing in. And so I, I do think they'll pull the plug and spend the money and probably take some flack for it from an optics standpoint. But you just can't afford to, like you said, languish for another year uh, when you play in that conference and when your rival is, is humming the way they are. You got to start addressing that. And it was a questionable hire in the first place. Uh, all of us were pretty puzzled and after what, why, why they would think he'd have success at South Carolina in the same division after he struggled at a school in Florida with much more, um, with much more going for it. Um, and, but like you said, there's some good, good possibilities out there. Billy Napier would be a home run. So Look, Louisiana, I, I, I actually think they have better, more viable options for them right now than what Michigan's looking at. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I don't know that. I mean, we've talked about freeze last week. I don't want to go back down that road. He did agree to a new contract this week. Yeah, but he can, he can get out of that. I would not. I think that's some optics there. I, I just don't. Yeah, I agree. But is South Carolina the one he wants to get out? If I were him, I'd wait a year for Tennessee to open. But um, that's him. Uh, and then, yeah, Napier, that would be a no brainer. He's that team is good. That team beat Iowa State soundly. Iowa State is now. Um, I believe tied for first in the Big 12 or maybe alone in first. They only have one loss. And they're only and Louisiana's only loss was by a field goal to Coastal Carolina, who's really good. So they won actually won their division. How crazy is that? They've yeah, already wrapped up their division before some teams played their first game. 
Right. And Billy Napier has a lot of ties. I mean, he's, he's a ten, he grew up in Tennessee, but he went to college in the state at Furman. He was on the Clemson staff for what amounted to probably a decade. So, um, you know, I could see that making a lot of sense for him and a lot of sense for them. And again, I, I think you knew that a lot of other SEC schools were interested in him and he opted to stay at, at Louisiana. And as you said, he's done a really good job and he's got something really good going there. So I don't know. We'll be interesting to see because that's definitely if you were to ask me right now, which which situations are the ones most uh, sensitive on the hot seat front, I would definitely say South Carolina is is a prime one. Obviously, we talked about who knows what goes on with Michigan, Uh, Tennessee, as you said, it might be a year away. I think just the economics and just it's only his third year there. I don't know if that's the that's the that's the right thing if you're. Phil Fulmer and that was your handpicked guy to just kind of admit the mistake and just blow it up and cost whatever 12 or 13 million dollars to get it to try to get it righted so I don't know it's gonna be interesting never mind that you know who knows how things play out at Texas Uh, we've talked about that a lot we'll see if Tom Herman can win down the stretch and get people feeling a little more confident than I think they are now hot seat coaches seems to be our recurring theme this week Uh, out west at the other USC I'm just, it's become this never ending groundhog day. I don't understand how Clay Helton manages to put the same team on the field every single year, no matter how many coaches he swaps out, no matter how much personnel turns over from one year to the next second. Now they're two and oh, second straight week. They come back to win at the last minute, but it's been a very hollow two and oh, because you can just see that nothing has gotten better. They just, they just stub themselves in the toes so much. I looked it up. They've been ranked in like the hundreds in penalty yards every single year he's been there. And they were watch, they were pretty far down when Pete when they won with Pete though too. In, in fairness to them, uh, yeah. I mean, but sure. But that those teams were good. This team is kind of hanging by a thin thread. It seems like. I mean, I credit to Arizona. I expected them to be the worst team in the Pac-12 this year, and and they they looked pretty good, but. Uh, that's a game USC should win handily. And there was a sequence in that game that was like the Clay Helton era defined where they got down to the one yard line and then uh, two straight penalties backed them up and then they missed the field goal. USC, and I'm sitting there and it's it's a weird dynamic to sit in a room and watch it with Reggie Bush and Matt Leinert. So you get like a, a weird sense of it on top of it. And I don't know... Like, first of all, we watched the game. You're wondering, is something wrong with Slovis's hand? Because for a guy who has a terrific arm and is very accurate, the ball was floating on him. Like at first, Matt was like, is it super windy there or something? And it was just like, it was weird because you, you, we noticed it early and then it just kept on going throughout the course of the day. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me and something uh, somebody I know had, had brought up, a coach I know had brought up to me this offseason when talking about his consideration for the you for a job at USC on the defensive side of the ball was they don't have good enough uh, corners and DBs right now. And that USC should be much better there. And they did not look very good. There were times where they looked slow. And again, this is Arizona. This wasn't Alabama they were against. I mean, and, and look, Grant Gannell, the, the Arizona coaches are really high on him, but they didn't look like they were much worse than USC when you watch that game. 
And that's the part where it was like, I know you and I talked like it looked like they were going to lose that game. And it didn't look particularly like fluky how they were going to lose it. And again, I think Arizona state is probably the most second most talented team in the, uh, in the PAC 12 South. But you know, you looked at their schedule and you're like, well, who's going to beat them? Well, then they lost, they almost lost to the, to the, to the team most people think is the worst team in the South. And again, there was nothing felt fluky about it. So um, it's interesting. I want to just, while we're talking PAC 12, one thing, I thought it was an entertaining game, Oregon, Washington state. Uh, Jaden Delora is a really talented young quarterback that Nick Rolovich has. And I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be very good as they kind of continue to grow but I like the Joe Moorhead fit more and more at Oregon. And I think we saw in Tyler, Taylor Shuck how, um, how dangerous he is as a dual threat guy in this system. And you're seeing other guys who I think have to be um, really, really ex- like, you know, Travis Dye, who is like kind of a situational, he's a smaller back was a weapon in this offense now as a receiver, as a big play guy. C.J. Verdell is kind of like the bell cow. But when you look at in between the way uh, Tyler Shuck can run and throw and some of these other weapons they have, I think this is the most interesting offense Oregon's had, you know, probably since, you know, probably since they had a playoff team. And that's, you know, granted, they had to replace the, the whole offensive line. And I'm not saying this is a this is a playoff contender for sure, but the Moorhead hire is looking really, really good, I think, for the, how some of these other complementary pieces are fitting with the young quarterback. Yeah, I agree. I, I watched a good chunk of that game. I, I don't know that you can read much now out of the Stanford game. I think Stanford is terrible. I hate to say that because I know we have Stanford listeners, but, I mean, they may be the worst team in the Pac-12. But Washington State had a good opening win, and they may be the rare team that could lose a quarterback in Justin Herbert, who is starting and playing well as a rookie in the NFL and actually get better on offense. And that's not a slight on Herbert. That's more, I think this is a better scheme for them. And I lose think. their entire offensive lines Stu. their entire offensive line, including the best offensive lineman in the country opted out. And that's the only reason, frankly, to still possibly be a little bit skeptical. Have they played defenses that can really test that offensive line? But I do think having a guy who can run a quarterback in Moorhead system, that's that's when he's usually at his best. And they've got two great running backs. Um, I think some of those receivers who were young last year and still kind of raw are coming into their own. So um, I have renewed faith in Oregon. I was a little down on them in the preseason. I think they have to be your clear favorite to win the conference. But I do still think USC is going to win the South, which will be – your perfectly unsatisfying uh, kind of season for USC fans where they're still not that good, but good enough to keep Clay Helton for another year. So since you mentioned them, I am curious, because again, you know, we talked a, talked a lot at the beginning about some of these other programs that have fallen off. What the hell has happened to Stanford? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you think about how successful they were for most of the last decade. Uh, and it's just, it started Remember, to, who was the one who really built it, you know, from from nothing was the guy we were yep. you know, talking about. Well, to David Shaw's credit, he kept it going at a very high level long after Harbaugh's players were gone. But it's definitely regressed over the last couple of years. Last year, four and eight. They could blame it on injuries, but it was still four and eight. And then, I mean, just everything, nothing has been trending the right way for them the last couple of years. And you look at them 
going into this year and you're like, who, who are the guys who are going to be the, the standouts on this team on, on either side of the ball. And then two of them, Paul Snadebo and Walker little opted out. So when I watch them, I just, it doesn't look anything like, I mean, Stanford put a lot of guys in the NFL uh, in the 2010s. You're not seeing very many of them out there. Now, Davis Mills is still relatively early in his career. Uh, he didn't get to play last week, as we found out over a uh, false positive or inconclusive test, which really stinks. Um, but I, you know, I think the one that really stands out is on defense, where they, they like I said, a lot of, put a lot of defensive players in the NFL over the years, and I see hardly any out there right now. Yeah, I, I'm. I don't know. They they have definitely fallen off in a big way. And, you know, obviously it's, you'd look at it and I always thought, and you and I are, you know, we're not recruitable college age. We're grownups now, but you look at it and go, of course, why would Stanford, why would kids not want to go to Stanford? You know, it's, it's arguably the, the best education you can get in major college football. It's in a, you know, it's in a, um, you know, in a pretty amazing place. You have a history there. You have an NFL style coach who knows what it takes to get there. Um, there's so many resources now. Obviously, the game day environment there is sorely lacking, but you do have a lot of other great resources, you know, as both, you know, player wise and professional wise. And yet it's just, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like they are really backsliding in a hurry. Well, there's a couple important facts. Because first of all, guys are picking to go to Stanford. It's not like these weren't highly ranked recruits. Uh, but two, two, uh, you know, they had such continuity in that coaching staff for so long. And then Mike Bloomgren goes and becomes the coach at Rice. Mm -hmm. and they go from having consistently great offensive lines to very ho-hum offensive lines. And then this one gets completely overlooked. But they had the sp same strength coach since... Uh, day one Harbaugh, Shannon Turley, who became one of the most respected strength coaches in the whole country. He was fired prior to the 2019 season over a uh, still to this day undisclosed allegation by a former player. So, you know, I mean, Stanford's not the kind of program or kind of school where you can just plug in and keep going. I think Shaw has struggled to overcome some of those defections. We got a couple good mailbag questions. Should we get to them? Let's do it. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. This first one is from Nate Cowan, Venice, Florida. He's a Florida State fan. From 1977 to 2017, we never had a losing record. We haven't had a winning record since. And now two of our top players and the starting quarterback at the beginning of the season just left the program. Is there any good news coming in the next few years? Is Mike Norvell the right guy? I man, I don't know. It's I really just a don't total know. rebuild. It's just you have to burn it to is. the ground and start over. And look, I mean, I'll be honest. I thought Willie Tiger was going to win there, especially when I saw the staff he had. And I think that the infrastructure of that program was already kind of rotted. Uh, the end of the Jimbo tenure obviously was not good, and it started to really fall apart. And then Willie kind of it was like a lot of two steps forward, two steps back. And I think what you see, and again, I mean, they're, they're two and six. And as you, you know, like there was a day, I want to say it was Thursday because there was so much going on in college football where it was like Marvin Wilson's out for the season. Their most talented receiver, or one of their most talented receivers has left the program. And there was like three other, you know, the former starting quarterback is, is not, is, is no, there was, it was all in one morning. 
Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, in some ways, this is one of those like, you know, and now they play Clemson. Right. And so it's like, it's, it felt like it was probably going to get worse before it gets better, but you know, it may, it may not get better next year. Like, I mean, I don't know how you look at this and go, yeah, they're going to, you know, lose some of these really good players that they had still left. They didn't have the depth of them. I don't know. I mean, it's not helping that, you know, Florida is a hot program and they have a Heisman contender. That's only going to make it harder for them. Clemson is, is not backing up. I think Miami is having a, is having a really good season. That's only going to make it harder for them to recruit. So I still think Mike Norvell is a really good coach. But again, I would have thought Willie was going to do. Sometimes it's just, um, you know, I don't know. Sometimes it's just the circumstance. And look, Mike Norvell's had some, some issues there beyond just wins and losses that he's had to sort out, which have been like, I don't want to call them PR nightmares, but they have been a lot of stuff that you do not want to have happen on your watch if you're a first-year head coach trying to build a foundation, especially if you're a first-year head coach and it's happening in a pandemic. I mean, that's unique circumstances. Don't you think that, and I'm not there on the ground, but like you said, there's been going back to the, to the preseason when there was that um, getting my, there are a lot of these kind of situations, but players, I think threatening to not practice or quit the team over concerns about COVID um, protocols there. Anytime there's a new coach, you know, you hear about guys aren't buying in. Like the guys from the old coaching staff haven't bought in. I would imagine that that's, particularly true when you fire a guy like Willie Taggart, who was only there two seasons, who the players probably revered um, and you bring in this guy from the outside in Norvell. So uh, it just seems like there's a weeding out that's going to have to take place and it could be, and and it's going to be drastic and it's on the heels of, I'm sure Taggart had to do his own weeding out when, when a new coach comes in. So I know they felt like they had to fire him after two years and actually wasn't even make it two years. Uh, Andy Staples did a great column at that time about the financial ramifications. If they kept going with him, the season tickets had fallen through the, you know, we didn't know, obviously there wouldn't be many fans there this year either way. But um, yeah, I think that that program with all that turmoil, I mean, Jimbo was there in 2017. So it's a lot of turmoil in a very short amount of time. And it's going to take a long time to overcome that Um, question for you, Bruce from, Matt in Delaware, he's just curious to hear your reasoning for ranking Ohio State second and Notre Dame third in your in your weekly top 10. Well, I actually agree with this, even though I'm a Notre Dame fan. I don't understand how someone that gave Stu a five-minute lecture about how Coastal Carolina deserved to be ranked in the top 10 a few weeks ago based on body of work, and then gave a little speech about how that's what voters should look at when making rankings, could justify having the Buckeyes higher. Notre Dame just beat your fourth ranked team and Ohio state has beaten three teams with a combined. Oh, he sent this before the weekend. Ohio state has beaten three teams with a combined record of one in seven. I see well, I mean, look, that, honestly, that record, you know, with the exception of Nebraska, I mean, Penn state lost again, Rutgers lost again. So two and he, nine. Yeah, he's right. Um, he's right. Uh, you know, in some ways I'm looking at it going, well, they have enough for me to justify sticking them on there. I don't know. I, I, I might, feel, I think you whiff there, my friend. No, I might feel differently. I think if, if Clemson had been at full strength on defense, I mean, 
again, I think, I think Notre Dame definitely earned its spot in the top three. And I hate to do this because this makes me hypocritical. Cause I'm like, I mean, it's not like they played head to head, but at the same time, if, if you ask me, who do I think would win Ohio state or Notre Dame? I think <laughs> I would say Ohio state, but I don't like making that argument. The only thing is right now, Ohio state, you know, I'd probably be better served to have put them there if they beat Indiana this weekend, albeit it's a home game, um, than what they've done so far. So, no, good on him for calling me out. That's that's uh, the having your cake and eating it too, and he's right. I actually thought Notre Dame turning around after that big emotional win and not having a letdown at BC was really impressive, and Ian Book uh, – something got into him in the fourth quarter against Notre Dame and he's now playing, I mean, against Clemson and he's now playing some of the best football of his career. So yeah, I think they're deserving of that number two. Even if you think I do too, if Ohio state played Notre Dame, probably I'm picking Ohio state, but Hey, guess what? I picked Clemson too. And, uh, and they proved me wrong there. Do you take issue with me having Texas A&M above Florida in my top 10 rankings right now? You mean, cause you're respecting the head to head. Yes. No, I don't. Have any, I don't have any problem with that. I don't think. I mean, it's kind of the same. You know, look, I don't envy anybody doing these rankings this year. It's just so. It's even more arbitrary than usual. But if you want to respect the head-to-head and have A and M ahead of Florida, uh, that's fine. Record, that's the point. I don't think A and M is the fifth best team in the country. Um, where do you have Cincinnati? Well, I think you've got Cincinnati too low, my friend. Well, who would you have them above BYU? Yeah, I'd have them again above BYU because they played a better schedule um, and they've been absolutely dominant against that schedule. I think I would go if if I was if I, I was still doing the top ten, I'd have Alabama one, Notre Dame two, um, Ohio State three, Florida four, Clemson five. I might have Cincinnati six. What more could you ask from them? I don't think you can ask for much more for them. The only thing is when you say that their schedule is uh is that much better than than BYU and I'm not saying BYU has a great schedule BYU went to to Boise and smashed Boise State I don't know when I look at at Cincinnati's schedule it's like Memphis has a Memphis is is pretty good SMU is pretty good I'm not sure when I look at the rest of it's like Army is a good win but it's not like all these teams are are like you know, I don't. I don't want to get too carried away with it. Sure, I think. And again, point, I, I think it's a splitting hairs thing. But I, I mean, I, if you ask me, I think Cincinnati has the much better defense, and I would say BYU has the much better offense. Well, it's probably going to be a moot question point here pretty soon because Cincinnati's end of season down the stretch here schedule is is clearly much better than BYU's. They play at UCF. On the road. Yeah, they play at UCF this weekend, which. UCF, I think, still has the number one offense in the country. Then they're at Temple, and then they're at Tulsa, which when that game got postponed in October, you're like, okay, it's just another another transaction on our list of postponed games. Well, Tulsa's pretty good. Tulsa, who uh, gave Oklahoma State quite a scare in the first week, is now 4-0 in the conference and has a really good defense, has an All-America caliber guy uh, at linebacker. And Cincinnati plays them on the road on a Friday night and then they probably have to play them again in the conference title game. So uh, they will have plenty of chances to move up your rankings. Is that it? That's it. As always, send those questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. 
uh, as we signing off, Cal is playing like a team whose defensive line was in quarantine for two weeks, down 20 to 10 to UCLA. Uh, by the time you listen to this, you'll know who won. We'll see you next time.